11. Yeah, lost the verses. Which verses, John? 19 to 30. Oh, there you go. 19 to 30. Right, it's right behind me. Here we go. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it by the elders, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Father, thank you that you're a God who speaks to us, and you speak to us in all sorts of ways, and perhaps most importantly, through your word, the scriptures, which we love. Thank you so much for giving them to us. And I pray, Lord, that as we get into them now, the Holy Spirit will be writing the truths of them onto our hearts and making them alive to us, as John preaches. Amen. Amen. Over to you, John. Thank you. But I really do want to thank you for the warm welcome. Your, your uh, hall has gone from chilly to, like, um, I don't know, hot. <laughs> so I've been, we, we, got the, uh, we got this fitted on with uh, one, two, three layers on, and then I've taken one layer off and now another layer off. But we're, we're stopping at this point, sorry. Um, but seriously, I, I've, we've already felt the warmth of, of your welcome uh, this morning. Thank you. And uh, uh, the sense of you as a church. I know some of you, this is new today, but you know, folk like Kit saying, can we get our, kind of our prayer guys going behind you? And the, the supportiveness uh, from Simeon coming this, you know, encouraging us this morning. It's been really, really great. So I really want to thank you for that. Um, we're going to look at this passage together today. I think it, it should be a fairly simple message that I'm bringing. Um, I, I want to ponder really what it was uh, that Barnabas was seeing in this church in Antioch. You know, when it says he saw the grace of God, you know, it, the grace of God, it, it was manifest in those people. They could see something. And I, I don't know that I'm going to give like the, the total exhaustive answer to that, because I think actually the answer to that is probably quite a big answer. It's a very, you know, the grace of God is not a small thing. <laughs> it is so multifaceted. It's so rich inexhaustible, so I'm only going to perhaps touch some aspects of it, um, but hopefully we will be uh, instructed a bit about what the grace of God actually looks like. And in the process, I hope I'm going to touch on um, 
one or two of the uh, sort of familiar priorities or themes or values that have meant so much uh, to us as a relational mission over the years. So first of all, let's just uh, step back a bit earlier into Acts to understand what's been going on, what what brings us to this point uh, in, in Antioch. And uh, if you've been a Christian for a while, it's quite likely you'll know a bit about uh, the book of Acts. Um, and right at the very start, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is giving final instructions to his followers. And he says, you'll be my witnesses. The Spirit of God's going to come on you. There's going to be power. And uh, you're going to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And that is almost like uh, the, the con- contents page at the start of the book of Acts for what is going to follow. The rest of the story is an unfolding um, of that story. And so one chapter later, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church for the first time. And in, in the supernatural activity that happens, people from many nations who are there sovereignly hear in their own language God's praises being uttered. And you, could, you can see in a map, if you've got a study Bible, often they show you on the map how kind of like the known world is represented there. Acts 1.8 is kind of in, in embryo, almost beginning to be conceived in chapter 2. Uh, by the way, I will tell you when to change slides, so just hang on for a bit. I'm not quite ready for the next one. Um, then uh, the story unfolds. I'm not going to go into every detail, but in chapter 6, there's conflict in that first church in Jerusalem. And the conflict is between people who are from a very kind of like a typical Jewish or Hebrew kind of background. But there are also Jewish people there that come from a, a different kind of background. They've been much more influenced by the wide uh, culture that was in the known world at that time. It's been influenced by, by Greek culture. They're they're called uh, Hellenists, people who've been Hellenized. And those two groups were a bit different from one another. They were all Jews by background, but there was cultural difference. And so there was conflict and some division arose. And the apostles had to find a way to resolve that to make sure that unity was maintained. This is like an early warning of what would become quite a feature in the early church. As Acts 1.8 begins to work out, and as they're going to go wider, it's going to bring challenges. Because it's a lot easier to be with people who are exactly like you. Being together with people who are different to you does present challenges, but it's at the very heart of what Jesus came to do. The grace of God. We'll come back to that in a moment. So then in chapter 10, so just before our story, it's a like an earthquake moment. It's an absolute turning point in the Acts story. And it's underlined by how the story's told in repetition. It's told at length. And there is divine and angelic activity, supernatural activity. As a reader, you're supposed to think, hmm, this is a big deal. And what happens is that God breaks into Peter. He's in some kind of trance and has this, this vision. And God simultaneously is breaking into the life of a man called Cornelius, who's not from a Jewish background at all. He's not a Hellenized Jew. He is a Gentile. He's, he's not a bit like the Jews. He's separate from them. He's from a different ethnic group altogether. And God supernaturally breaks him to these two separated people. And he tells Peter, 
you're going to have to go and speak to these people. And he tells Cornelius, you're going to have to get ready because they're coming to speak to you. And then you might know the story. It's a beautiful moment because Peter is like kind of, he's a bit disorientated by what's going on, but you know, it's what preachers do. They start preaching and they're unstoppable, you know? I mean, I know I've got a time I'm supposed to stop. You're going to have to take action and be firm with me because I can go on. That's what preachers do. Well, the Holy Spirit was having none of it. And so partway through Peter's sermon, bang, the Spirit of God comes with such power that even Peter can't carry on preaching. The preacher has to stop early. It's a miracle. And it was just like Acts chapter 2. The Spirit's poured out and they begin to speak with these supernatural languages. It's extraordinary. And the conclusion of that, Peter says, well, I mean, it seems like God is dealing with these Gentiles in exactly the same way as us. So who am I to stand in the way of what God is doing? And so the, the, this, the plan of Acts 1 verse 8, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, is now, it's like the match is now struck. The, 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 it had been said it was going to happen in chapter 10. Whew, the spirit strikes the light. And now we have a multi-racial, racial, interracial and intercultural church brought into being. Not just those from a very Hebrew background and those who are a bit Hellenized, but all Jews. No. It's the first of what will become an unfolding list of many different races and nations from the Gentile nations brought into something absolutely brand new. It is big news. And so just before where Simeon read, in verses 17 and 18, it says this. This is Peter's conclusion. If then, you can put the next slide up as well. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they, so this is the church back in Jerusalem and Judea. When they heard these things, they fell silent And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So the church falls silent. And Paul picks up on these, this theme in, very, in many places in the letters. Galatians 3.28. He talks about how the things that formerly divided us, separated us. We use them as the basis to keep apart from one another, whether they're matters of what sex we're from or what our background is. He says these things now have become so secondary because our primary identity is that we are all one in Christ Jesus. You don't stop being a man or a woman just because you've become a Christian. Of course not. That's ridiculous. You don't stop being, well, I was born in Uganda or I was born in Peterborough or wherever it is. Of course, that's still meaningful. You you still probably have your mother language. You might learn others as you grow. So, So these things are still, they're still relevant, but they're not what define you. The church is made up of all those who are now one in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 2, Paul makes the same, place, uh, the same point. He, he talks about how what Jesus has done is to bring about one further piece of creation. You, you, when you go to Genesis chapter 1, you read about the days of creation. It's almost like God had got sort of one little thing, not little, one big thing hidden behind his back. 
And it's like, oh, I did this, it's good. I did this, it's good. Did this, it's good. Did this, it's good. Now human beings are made very good. But God's still hiding one thing. And you think, aha, there's creation. Look at this. Perfect, complete, beautiful, wonderful creation. And God in his heart's thinking, ha, I've still got a surprise for them. Because one day there's going to be a new creation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take people who are from a Jewish background and those from all the Gentile nations' backgrounds, and I'm going to bring them together, and they are going to have a new nationhood, a new status, a new identity. They're going to become one new man in Christ. Not in Adam, in Christ. One new humanity, one new people, one new group. That One new man, the singular, implies that the unity, the oneness of it, this is what's going to happen. And that's what has begun here in chapter 10. And it's the backdrop then to chapter 11. This is what the grace of God has brought into being. How wonderful. And the church falls silent. It's a revolution. The people fall silent. It's controversial. If you read uh, the earlier bit of chapter 11, which we didn't read, you'll see that whilst some are amazed and in wonder, others are angry and upset. And they're saying, no, we've got to keep these separation here. You've got the Jews on the one side and you've got Gentiles on the other. Don't mix them up. You can't, you can't just say there's one church. No, we've got to maintain that. And we know that this controversy continues to this very day. The thing is that you, uh, uh, you, you, formerly it used to be ethnic Jew versus ethnic Gentile. That was the great division in the world. But, but now God, by his grace, has made his children saints, holy ones. And now the division is between the saints and those who are of the world. That is the division. It's no longer based on ethnicity. It's true that you can't change your ethnicity. You're either born as a Jew or born as, born as a Gentile. But through the grace of God in the gospel, you can be born again by the Spirit. And your spiritual identity is now changed forever. So some quick applications for us this morning. Let's be like we read in uh, chapter 11. Let's be amazed at what God's done. Let's be amazed at the wonder of it. Be amazed at who you are. You're not what you are. Well, sorry, you're not what you were. Paul says, a new creation. I am a new creation. God has made you new. I know you, you probably sing about this most weeks when you come here. You hear about it. You pray about it. But let's just let the wonder of it come on us again. We are not what we were. By the grace of God, we're something new, something different. We are a new creation in all the earth. We're part of this one new humanity made up of people from increasingly all the nations of the earth. More and more are being added in. Beautiful unity. And that, that's the second application then. Let's embrace unity. Because we are one, but Paul says that the application of this is to then make every effort to maintain it. Now, this is classic Christian living. God makes you something and then says, be who you are. <laughs> and he trusts us with responsibility and with power, by the way, from the Holy Spirit, who's the one that made us one in the first place. He said, now the Holy Spirit will help you cooperate. Take up that posture. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm going with what the Holy Spirit's going with. I'm doing what the Holy Spirit's doing. I'm joining with him. Embrace unity. Reject racism and every other form of human cultural divide. Friends, 
Our world is so stressed and angry and wound up at the moment, probably always has been, in the West in particular. Man, we're wound up like I don't know what. You know, absolutely wound like a spring. Everyone's so angry and everyone's shouting, we've got to be one, we've got to be one, we've got to, we've got to be one just like how I say it's got to be and it can't be like how you say it's got to be, we've got to be one. The world's desperate for unity. But the unity that it's looking for is external, and it's on the basis of this group. Say, it's got to be this way. No, it's got to be our way. No, I want it to be my way. It's, it's never going to work. And yet there is this deep yearning within human beings for unity. Brothers and sisters, there is a true unity to be found in the earth. It's in the church. I bet this is the most racially united gathering anywhere in Cambridgeshire, along with the other churches, of course. I bet this is the place where men and women are the most united. I bet this is where people from different social classes and backgrounds, this should be a place of the deepest unity, salt and light. People should be able to taste it. They should be able to see it. When Barnabas came to Antioch, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. Wow. I I think that part of what he was seeing then was this unity. Because I hope you were listening to the story that Simeon read. But what happened was that these people from, uh, from this Jewish background, they, they traveled, and as they traveled, some of them spoke to people just like them about the gospel, and those people believed in Jesus. But some of them began to speak to people who were from a different cultural or racial background. And they too began to believe in Jesus. And by the time Barnabas comes to Antioch, there's a church. Because this is what happens. People speak about Jesus, speak about Jesus. People become disciples of Jesus. You get church. And when Barnabas came, he could see the grace of God there. And I think it's this multiracial multicultural unity that was being expressed there that was part of what he was seeing. Very quickly, if we pop the next slide up. So if we wanted to, you can take a photo of this if you want or get a copy of it. This, chap- this se- section we've looked at is actually a beautiful, uh, it beautifully illustrates the chapters in Mike Betts' book, Relational Mission, The Way of Life. And I've just put some verses there you can see. I, this is just what I noticed as I was preparing for it. But I cannot possibly hope to do all those points in the remaining few minutes. So um, um, on to the next slide. I want to just focus in on chapter 6 which is the chapter on starting new families, starting new churches, what we sometimes call church planting. And I want to highlight some really obvious things from this section. How do we see churches being started in the New Testament? Well, we see that there's something of God's providence, something of God's plan is revealed. It's a scattering that takes place in Jerusalem and Judea. There's a persecution that comes on the church that drives them out. Now, no one wants persecution, but if you've listened to the stories of some of the church leaders from Ukraine, the scattering has led to the planting of probably hundreds of churches, not just in Ukraine, but all over the planet. It's extraordinary how God has used the war in Ukraine to bring about a certain 
good for the sake of the gospel. And so God can and will move us in many and unexpected ways. At the moment, it's not persecution is typically the case in this land, but job opportunities or family circumstances can cause you to move. And I guess I just want you to uh, to stay alert, brothers and sisters. If God, or when God, moves you on, you might get a prophetic word. A prophet might come and say, Simeon, <laughs> um, person X, <laughs> God says, out of the blue, something might happen. And to be honest, that was rather what happened with Nikki and myself. But that's not always the way that it happens something might happen that just means that you need to move. And I want you to be ready to respond to that with, okay, Lord, what is your purpose and intention behind this for your mission? Don't just think, oh, we've got to move house, we've got to go and look after my elderly mother and father, or whatever it is. Okay, Lord, this is now a mission, this is a gospel, a kingdom of God opportunity. How do you want to use me? Go and talk to your elders about it. Find out what, what, how, how can God now be working through this. Help, let's try and discern his hand here. God can work in all kinds of ways. Let's be open to those. <clears throat> Next, I notice obedience. Simple obedience. What to? The Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Surely you know it. <laughs> Surely you do. Acts 1.8 is another restatement of that. But Matthew 28, 18-20, go and make disciples. So as they went, they were obedient to make disciples. They spoke to people as they went. Next, I notice, I've already referred to it really, pioneering. They were crossing social and ethnic boundaries. They, they, they were using a common language, perhaps to enable them to speak, but they were speaking to people from different backgrounds to themselves, different races perhaps. So there's a pioneering, a crossing over of barriers that needs to take place. This is, could be incredibly relevant to you. Your next door neighbor is probably not identical culturally to you. It's quite likely to be some difference of background or experience. But don't hold back because they're not like me. We're called to cross over such boundaries. You don't have to go church planting to another city or another town in order to be called to pioneer and cross boundaries. Maybe you as a church, maybe the Lord is going to speak to you at some point about actually some pioneering into the, the city around here. There's going to be some new parts of the city and some new people in the city that he's going to call you to begin to reach to. Let's be, be open to that. Keep your ears open to the Spirit. Lord, where are you sending us? Where are you directing us? What doors of opportunity? Where's the Macedonian call? Come and help us. Be, be open to that. And then I see maturing going on. I mean, it's early days, but Barnabas is there. Already he sees the grace of God. In other words, the seed had begun to shoot. There was greenness. There was fruit even. You could see it. Something maturing. What does it look like for the grace of God in a people? Well, there's much more to it than I've been able to say today. But there's evidence. Look at verse 23. There's evidence there that of, 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 of being called to be faithful, to be steadfast, to be growing, to, to be disciples. The disciples there were first called Christians. How cool is that? 
But they were disciples. Little Christs is what a Christian means. The people say, oh, you're, 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 try, you're copying Jesus. You're trying to be like Jesus. Yeah, too right. Oh, you little Christs. Yeah, bring it on. We'll take that. That's what it stuck. Wow, what an honor to be mocked by your community and be told you're just like Jesus. What a beautiful insult to take on board. Oh, if only we would be described in such ways. So there was a maturing going on. And then, and how did that come about? Well, verse 26, we see how there was this patient teaching that was going on. And uh, there's evidence of the grace and the maturity there in the generosity that we see in verse 29. And then there's multiplying. And how was this going on? Well, the multiplying, it was coming partly by them being open and receptive. So they, they received Barnabas and Saul, uh, who, who will be called Paul. They received them amongst them. And they received their teaching for a whole year, bringing the gospel. They, they could have been like, kind of, no, we're just, we're just going to stick with ourselves. They were open and receptive to trusted ministry coming amongst them. And I, it's possible that you know the story, but in chapter 13, which is, it's, I mean, look, if you want to, read it now and, and stop listening to me, I don't mind. But in, in those first few verses, you get a few names of the people in the church in Antioch. They're deliberately named with names of all kinds of different races. It sounds like there's, some, there's an African name in there. There's some other places as well. You can see this multiracial, multicultural church there. It's, that's, what, that's what the grace of God was producing. And that church then hears the voice of the Spirit. So now send out these apostles. Send, send. So they received and they sent. So there was this multiplying effect. They were open to receive and then they were ready to send and to give as well. So friends, some quick applications. Be alert to providence. I've said that already. Be alert to doors opening, unexpected moves, changes. Listen to prophecy, the voice of the Lord. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself, really. We're all called to witness. Remind you of everyone a witness. That's chapter 3 in Mike's book. Uh, and notice how there is an alertness in the Christians in chapter 11 to what God was doing in the wider world. The, the Christians back in Jerusalem and Judea, they've heard what's going on down in Antioch. Have you heard what God's doing in Antioch? Wow, it's like it's amazing. Can you believe what God's been doing over there and, and what God's doing there? There's an alertness to how the family was expanding. And so I just want to encourage you to stay alert to what God is doing. Obviously, the church is now a vast worldwide family, but God has put us into a kind of a, a bit of a family within the worldwide family called Relational Mission. Stay alert and take interest in what God's doing all the way over in Norfolk and Suffolk or Essex and Kent. Did you know you're on the Wild West frontier at the moment? Did you realize that? Cambridgeshire, the Wild West of relational mission. Not much longer because we're going west. Uh, and, uh, but, but we'd love you to feel caught up with us in some way, to pray for us, to, to kind of carry us a little bit into your hearts. Oh dear. Well, I am on my last page, but I only had three, so that's not so good. But quickly, um, 
here's a question, that, next slide, a question that I'm being asked by people. Why start new churches, especially in the UK? There's lots of churches, aren't there? You can go to any town or city, there's churches there, some of them are a bit ropey, some of them are quite good. Why bother starting new churches? And I just want to give you a super quick uh, explanation for why we are compelled to carry on starting new churches. First of all, it is the biblical pattern for implementing the Great Commission. When Jesus said go, this is what then happens in chapter 11 of Acts. The disciples, they go, they, they tell people about Jesus, the church. It doesn't say in Acts chapter 11, and they wondered whether or not they ought to start a church. And someone contacted the charity commission to find out how they should go about it, and they asked some lawyers to help. You don't read that. It's just like, it's it's breathless. That One minute they're proclaiming Jesus, the next thing you know, there's church. It was totally instinctual. You go to a new place, you talk about Jesus, you gather disciples. What's that gathering called? Church, it's just the way that we do it. So we don't go and think, oh, well, we won't bother with church. Church is absolutely inherent to the obedience to the Great Commission. Secondly, for goodness sake, the need is vast almost everywhere, especially in Europe. I mean, the UK thinks it's doing well if we've got like three, four, maybe 5% of the population listening to the sound of the gospel. What about the other 95%? The need is desperate everywhere. There is room for so many gospel-proclaiming churches. If you travel to some other parts of the world where the gospel is going further, as you drive along the road, you'll see there's a church, five doors down, there's a church, five doors down, there's a church. Church after church after church, saturating communities with the gospel. That's what it needs to look like. Big churches, little churches, churches that have got all kinds of strengths and callings on them, fantastic. But lots and lots and lots and lots more churches is what we need. All over Cambridgeshire, more churches are needed. Probably all over the city, more churches are needed. The need is great. And then this is a sort of bit of a pragmatic one, but there is good evidence, you know, research that's been done, that on average, new churches that get started do these following things. They discover new tools for evangelism. They reinvigorate existing churches in their mission and witness. Sometimes it's out of jealousy or a sense of competition, But, you know, Paul sort of says, I don't care what the motive is. I just want Christ to be preached. And so as other churches kind of think, do you know what? We we could do an Alpha course too. Or we could have a go at doing Christianity Explored too. We can learn from these people. Let's do it too. You have like this kind of tide rising and all the ships rise together. And there's evidence of that. That's what happens. There's new opportunities for people to grow and serve. It's been so instructive to me watching what's happening down in, in Watton where we're church planting. There's some people there, and I'm, I'm looking particularly at two of the wives of, of some of the guys leading there, and I'm thinking they were so sort of like... This is being recorded, isn't it? I, they wouldn't mind me saying this, I don't think. They were quite shy and quite reserved. And in the church plant situation, they've stepped up, they're taking responsibility, they're growing, and they're loving it. In fact, one of them shared at our conference the previous weekend, so it's okay for me to say that. It creates space to grow. And new churches, they reach more people. 
They're very good at, at reaching new communities. Where there are new groups that have moved into a city, new churches reaching in are particularly effective at reaching them. And they're willing to, to take risks. A second question I get asked, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and race to a close now. I'm really near the end. I do get asked a second question, which is why plant New Frontiers-type churches in places where there are already New Frontiers-type churches? Well, I refer you back to my previous answer, because I think that that is still the main answer. But I just want to remind us, for those who... Some of you might think, what's he talking about? And that's fine. But if that question makes sense to you, it's really important to remember that in 2011, the New Frontiers family of churches came to a close, and New Frontiers became now a group of apostles or leaders who are working together. And in 2011, they agreed amongst themselves, no territoriality, anyone can plant anywhere. They did say, let's play nicely. So talk to brothers and sisters when you're coming in. But the need is so great that if one uh, new frontier sphere can make a move and another one can make a move, that's a win for the gospel, so long as they don't go about it in a way that's competitive or kind of ugly in some way like that. I mean, to be honest, if you've been around long enough, you might remember that there were four New Frontiers churches in Bedford long before we went into spheres. Anyway, and ultimately, some of us might move to a place, and it might be there's a good church there, we join them, great, they might be from a different denomination, different stream, or whatever, and that's absolutely fine. But for some of us, there's a deep, 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 deep investment of decades of love and friendship and relationship and prayer and an intermingling of prophetic destiny, which means that we're on mission together, I guess, until we go to glory. And why, you can't just say, guillotine, I'm going to go off and do something completely different. That's just not the way it works. We're, we're family. We're doing it as family. So I'm happy to talk to you more about that at the end. Friends, I don't know if there's even some people here today that maybe don't know Jesus for themselves. I just want to say, would you like to be a part of this wonderful family? Would you like to know Jesus as your Lord? In a few moments, we're going to be taking the, the bread and the wine. It's a family meal. Maybe you might want to come and take bread and wine for the first time with understanding. Say, I'm Jesus, I'm joining the family today. I want to be a part of this, this unity. I've been looking for unity for years. Now I see it. I want to be in. And as you take that bread, you think, Jesus died for you. As you take that wine, you think, Jesus literally shed blood to make this possible. Maybe you'll want to do that. And then others of you, maybe there's a stirring in your heart even today about the go. And we're going to come back to that much later on this morning and create an opportunity for you to respond. Simeon, I'll hand back to you. Sorry, I've overshot. That's absolutely fine. It's um, really helpful, John. Thank you. Yes. Um, So we're going to do two things now. Um, We're going to share communion and we're going to give.